we have recently taken a break from studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, which we've kind of been nose to the grindstone about all year, and we're taking a break right now for the month of July to focus on the five Levitical offerings, um, the five sacrifices that we find in the first few chapters of Leviticus. And the, the reason we're doing this uh, is, is twofold, okay? One is because I'm all about equipping us as a church to better appreciate, better utilize, and better read the portions of the Bible that seem excessive, that seem uh, like, like the leftovers, not, not the best or most helpful part, seem um, difficult to read and stuff like this. But the second reason is because in our study in 1 Corinthians, we've been dealing a lot, uh, a lot with these intense issues of the human condition. Um, the problems of, of sin and the need for judgment and all of these things. And I wanted to take some time and just focus on the solution for these things that God has provided in Jesus Christ. And there are many places in the scriptures that talk about this, but one of the best is the Levitical offerings. If you were with us last week, we learned that according to the book of Hebrews, that all five of these offerings were prefiguring or shadowing what God was going to do in Jesus Christ. In other words, he had created uh, a, a practice uh, for the Jews to teach them over and over again their need for a savior, the problem that was wrong with humanity, what the solution had to look like, so that when Jesus showed up, John could basically say, John the Baptist, behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, and all of it falls into place. All of their expectations and all of this liturgical practice and all of the sacrifices suddenly make sense in God's great plan. So we're going to continue that tonight. We're going to look at offering number two. If you have a Bible, you're going to want to open it to Leviticus chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one sitting nearby you that you are welcome to use. If you were dropped way out in the middle of nowhere and you had some form of GPS, if you're not familiar with the area, it's really not that helpful. Unless you can pinpoint something familiar, right? Unless you can zoom out far enough to see where you came from. Um, I'd like to do the same thing in the sermon tonight. I know that Leviticus can feel like foreign territory. We can feel a little out of our depth. It feels incredibly distant um, and hard to understand. And so I want to set the pin of our trajectory. I want to set our destination, if you will, first and then jump into the text. And here's, here's the destination. The Apostle Paul, who was at first extremely resistant to Christianity, to put it lightly, he was actually persecuting Christians and trying to stamp out this new religious sect called the Christians um, and had just a, um, a wild encounter with Jesus that turned him into the greatest proponent of Christianity. And he went around the known world all over the Roman Empire preaching the same Jesus that he was seeking to deny. Um, he does something for us that's very helpful he quotes a saying of Jesus that we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. For the most part, if you want to learn about the words and works of Jesus, you turn to the Gospels, the books that open the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
But in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he quotes a saying of Jesus that we wouldn't know about if it weren't for Paul's saying it. And just by way of an aside, it's important to remember that although Paul's not not a character in the Gospels, we don't find him showing up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was a Pharisee during the time that Jesus ministered. He was familiar with Jesus's ministry. He had heard of the miracles. He had seen these things. And so he had probably witnessed some of his teaching. And here, in the Corinthians letters, he says the saying of Jesus that is, to put it mildly, very captivating. This is what Jesus says, according to Paul, in the letter to Corinthians. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And for tonight, we have to recognize that this word blessed, or even blessing, gets used so frivolously in today, we have a tendency to import those words into Jesus' mouth, right? Like, hashtag blessed today means things that we would see in the lives of the Kardashians. But in Jesus' mouth, um, if you want to understand what blessing means, you can't go to any better place than the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, we have the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, and we have what's called the Beatitudes, which all begin with, blessed are the blank. And so it's basically this great lesson from Jesus on what true blessing looks like. And all of them are surprising. He said, blessed are they who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the poor, so for they shall receive the righteousness of God. Blessed are the meek, those who don't defend themselves, don't take any ground, don't you know, fight for themselves, for they shall inherit the earth. And as you look at the list, not a single person on the list looks like someone you would identify as living the good life. Just maybe the last one is the most helpful. Blessed are you when people revile you and curse you and persecute you, right? None of those things usually would get the hashtag blessed. But what he's trying to do is not talk about things that are a part of your life that make life blessed, but what he's really talking about is the good life, right? It's, it's not so much about things that you can find on a list or buy in a store or put in your shopping cart or order on Amazon. Uh, it's not aspects that make life worth living. It's, it's this bigger concept of the good life. And just think about that in the statement that Paul gives us. It's more blessed to give than to receive, okay? Now, I'm sure in some ways we've all had experiences that would validate that, but there's another aspect where that just doesn't seem to ring true okay there's this reality that says uh that getting is at at very least as good as giving if not better and we can uh incorporate this into so many of our relationships and what we often feel like is i have to get what i need first and then i'll be in a place when i can give and that's not how jesus puts it he says if you have you should give that's not what he says he says it's just a better way to live in giving than it is in receiving. Just take wealth as an example before we move forward. Jesus says it is a better life to give money away than to have lots of money. That's what he's saying, clearly, give than receive. Okay, now we can feel it rubbing against the grain of the way we normally think about things. The reason I bring this up is because Jesus is effectively saying the good life is a generous life. And what we're going to look at tonight in in the grain offering, as it's called in Leviticus 2, is a commentary on just this idea. It deals with just this issue specifically. 
So with that being said, let's go ahead and read it together, and then we'll pray. Leviticus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It's a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it into pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that it's made of these things to the Lord. And when it's presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It's a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of your covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of the first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer the grain of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn it as a memorial portion, some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It's a food offering to the Lord. Let's pray. God, not only is the Bible sometimes foreign because it is foreign, because it was written in a different language, in a different land, in a different time, in a different culture, but a lot of times it's foreign because we just don't know ourselves. and We just don't see the commonality of human nature and human life. We don't understand what Paul said when he said that all sin is common to man. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to dig deep enough tonight to see the similar roots and to recognize what Israel was learning and participating in in this act of worship and what it would look like for us to worship you this way today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, as detailed as it is, it's pretty clear what's going on here, right? The, the instructions given are are simple, even though they're detailed. In fact, most of this chapter is just laying out different options, but they really come out the same. Over and over, it is repeated, flour and oil and frankincense and burned on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. There's variations in there, but that's basically the whole of it. Now, before we look at the grain offering itself, I want to just remind you of kind of the cross-the-board reality of these five offerings. Leviticus 1 through 7 lay out the, uh, the sum total of the offerings of a person, male or female, of Israel, okay? And so there are festival offerings, 
and there are Levitical offerings, there are daily offerings, there are other categories, but these were the ones that made up the whole of any given Israelite's worship. These five would be offered occasionally and regularly throughout your life in those days in Israel. When we look at them, all five of them have things in common. There's constants in every one, the most primary being an altar and fire. In every single one, we'll see as we go week to week to week, this component is consistent. You will also see that there's a role for the offerer to play as well as for the priest. That is consistent. But when you start to look closer, you'll find that each one is unique. Um, It's unique in its name, it's unique in its requirements, it's unique in the way it's handled, it's unique in its emphasis, its occasion for giving. It's those unique aspects that we can focus on to start to see exactly what this was really about, okay? Now, here, what's most unique about this offering among all the others is that it's bloodless, If you were with us last week as we looked at the burnt offering, an animal is brought from the herd or from the flock or even a small bird, and it's brought and the hand of the offerer would be laid firmly upon it, and then the offerer would slit its throat and the blood would pour out into a bowl and it'd be poured out on the altar. Um, Here, there's no meat. There's no animal. Unlike the peace offering that we'll look at next week or both of the sin offerings that follow, here is an offering without sacrifice. In fact, when the Old Testament uses these two English words, sacrifice and offering, that's the distinction. One is bloodless. One is dealing with meat, is dealing with death, is dealing with substitution, and the other is not. In the same way, you may have noticed tonight that the word atonement was not spoken as it was in the burnt offering, as it will be in the peace offering, as it will be in the other two sin offerings. This is the only offering where you don't encounter the word atonement, okay? Now, we learned last week that the word atonement comes from a root word that means ransom. And the idea is that the offering is taking the place of the guilty. That here is an innocent death so that the guilty living party can experience what they don't deserve. Okay, that's what a ransom is. That's what atonement is. That's not what's going on here. That aspect is missing from this sacrifice. Okay. Now, one last piece before we really dig into it that we have to nail down. Obviously, if the focus here is on grain and not on meat, we have to recognize the distance between us as modern Americans and our grain, okay? When it says here that fine flour is offered, this is not, you know, um, a Jewish housewife who swings by the grocery store and picks up her gold medal flour and then on the way back home swings by the temple to make an offering, right? This is an agrarian society. Nobody in this community is more than one step removed from the grain field itself, okay? When it says fine flour here, it means that somebody took a mortar and a pestle and took the grain and ground it till it was fine, right? Uh, on top of that, just think of this. In an agrarian society like we would have had in Israel's day, you could almost say that farming was the true vocation and any other vocation just existed to serve that one vocation, Right? So you've got a blacksmith. What's he doing? He's making shoes for the animals that work the field and tools to work the field. 
you've got a butcher, and what's he doing? He's taking the animals that are being raised and turning them into meat. Agrarian societies are almost entirely built around this. Um, it's not that there weren't inns or even taverns. Uh, obviously, there weren't theaters or things like this. But the reality of an agrarian society is so connected in that way. Also, um, although money will become a thing in Israel, when the tabernacle is being laid out, we're dealing with a commodity culture, right, where there's trading going on. And so grain is about the closest thing they have to currency. And you might be able to contrast it on the market with other currencies, but grain's going to be the download, right? That's going to be, or sorry, the lowdown. It's going to be the line of which everything else is measured, you know. It's, it's the dollar of its day. And so... What we have to recognize here is if we're talking about grain, we're not just talking about God's favorite food, right? We're talking about a reality that is inherently economic and inherently labor-oriented. In other words, this offering is about your work and the fruit of your work. That's what this offering is about, okay? Now, one last thing. Grain is a big deal to an agrarian society, so it's a big deal to the Bible, beginning to end. The way that it's used as a metaphor is very broad. Its occurrences and how many parts of life it plays is very broad. And so there's a few things that we need to peel off the table that this is not talking about. For example, it mentions here specifically that it's not talking about the first fruits offering. It takes the time in verse... Um, Verse 12, as an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. Let me paraphrase. We're not talking about the first fruits offering. That's what Leviticus is saying here. If you keep reading Leviticus, you'll get to the major festivals of Israel, and each of them had their own practices, and two of them have to do with harvest. First, the grain harvest, um, the wheat harvest, and then the barley harvest, which both come at different times of the year. On both of those festivals, one of them being Pentecost, every Jewish male over the age of 13 would come and bring the first fruits from their field, okay? It'd be just the beginning of the harvest, so they'd take the first ones to bloom, and they'd bring them to God as an offering. That's not this offering, okay? There's another one that we need to tie in here, and that's the tithes, right? If you read through the Old Testament, Israel was commanded to tithe, the word means 10%, 10% of everything, everything they grew, um, every uh, animal that was born, all of their life, any profit they made, 10% of it was to be given to the Lord, both for the Levites to use as well as for the poor. That's not this. In fact, what's really important that you get with this offering here is that it's a free will offering. You don't have to bring this. There's no occasion that requires the bringing of a grain offering. This offering is because you want to worship God. It's a free will offering. Okay? So is the burnt offering and the peace offering that we'll look at next week. The last two offerings that we'll look at are occasional offerings. If this goes on, then you must offer this sacrifice. Okay? But the first three are free will offerings. So when we put these things together, what do we get? What we recognize here is that it, it's about labor, it's about economics, the fruit of your labor, and it's offered freely. That's why we started with generosity, because this is definitively an act of generosity. It's just giving, okay? In fact, 
Uh, if you have headings for your Bible, it probably says here something like laws for the grain offering. And that's appropriate because what does it say in verse 1? Read it with me. When anyone brings a grain offering, okay? Now, here's what's interesting. The word there translated grain in your Bible does not mean grain. In the same way that we found last week that the word translated burnt does not mean burnt. It literally means to go up. And so the focus of the first one was on the ascension of the smoke and not the burning on the altar. But because of the prevalence and the influence of the King James Bible, these titles have held. Now, it's still appropriate to call it a grain offering because that's what it, it consists of. But the name does tell us something. The word here that is translated grain in most testaments is the uh, Hebrew word minna. And it literally just means tribute or gift. Okay? So here's other non-offering occasions where this is used. When Jacob is coming back into the land of Israel and knows that his brother, who last time he saw him threatened to murder him, is on his way, he sends him a tribute of animals to appease him. When Israel is under the thumb of a really fat king named Eglog, or sorry, Eglon, Eglog is way funnier, but King Eglon, this fat king, Ehud, this judge of Israel, brings him a tribute, and interestingly enough, uses that tribute to infiltrate his throne room and assassinate him. Um, but it's, it's a gift. When Solomon has such foreign influence that people are bringing him gifts, foreign uh, parties, kingdoms are paying him tribute, it's this word. Okay? And so it's broadly, outside of the sacrificial system, just a word that means gift. And so in one sense, this is the offering offering. It's the gift offering. Okay? So the focus here is on it being a free will gift. And he says, if it's going to be a gift, it should be grain. If, if you're coming just to give as an act of generosity to the Lord, this is what it looks like. Okay? Now, here's the reason this is so important. We've seen last week, and we'll continue to see that each of these offerings not only points to what Jesus has done, but what's wrong with us, okay? And here's how, um, how the ancient Christians thought of it. They talked about being, that human beings were incurvitus, which is Latin for curved inwards, okay? And so the way they pictured it is if the way we were created is upright and engaging with our world and engaging with our God, what happened in the fall, what sin does to us is it curves us inward. And so we still see all of those things, but we see it through our own self. We think first of ourselves. And so everything we do as human beings is tainted with selfishness. Okay. I'll give you an illustration. We're talking here about giving to God, and this is a perfect place where the curvitus in, the incurvitus, plays out, okay? Let's just recognize that maybe, maybe second only to the idea of death. Sacrifice involves this kind of cost. Gift would be the second word that comes to mind, right? It's an offering. It's something that you give. If you've grown up around or related to churches, you know that, uh, that your offerings are still basically that. It's a gift to the Lord, your tithes and offering out, out of your account, it's giving. But even if you're not connected with Christianity, almost every major religion has this recognition of gifts to the gods, right? Everything from, um, from food to uh, human sacrifice to money to dedicating your life, this idea of gift is prevalent 
in the idea of worshiping God. However, however, we tend to think of it in a very specific way. So let me reverse it. There's a poet I enjoy who says this. He says that for most people, our first interaction with the divine is Santa Claus. It makes sense when you think about it, right? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. And the idea is if you do rightly, he will reward you. If you do poorly, he will not, right? And so the reality is then uh, the way that we view our relationship with the divine is not a give relationship, but a get relationship. And that's not just true with Santa Claus. Even most approaches to religion. In fact, everyone that I know of outside of Christianity basically says, if you do the right thing for God, if you give God, then either he'll leave you alone, right? I give to keep God off my back, or he'll give you what you truly dream of, okay? That wouldn't have made any sense to the ancient Israelite. That wouldn't have fit in this offering at all, okay? The reason, the reason is because that's not giving at all. It's really just prolonged getting, right? It's inherently self-interested. It says, God, you are a means to an end, and that end is either avoiding punishment or gaining blessing and reward, right? But if I can just give, I will eventually get, or as the case may be, not get, right, when it's the negative things. That part of human nature is not just a divine thing. It's not just inbred into the way that we often think about God. It's inbred into every relationship we have, right? Even the closest relationships, the ones that we save the word love for, like family and marriage, can reduce itself down to this, just an exchange of goods. And I scratch your back, you scratch mine scenario. In fact, sometimes we'll even think of relationships in that way, and what makes it loving is that we initiate with the hope that they'll respond. And so even generosity as a whole is twisted in human nature by selfishness. Look, it plays out a couple of different ways. If your primary motivation for giving is guilt, you will have this constant experience of your own selfishness, right? You see the ads on TV, you see the flies, you know, flying around the children, you see how impoverished they are, and the ad says, look, we have so much in our culture, we should share. And you go, yeah, that's right. And you do so, but pretty soon you start to recognize not the things that you do share, all the things you don't share, right? As Louis C.K. puts it, the comedian, he says, look, I know I drive a nice car, and if I sold it, I could feed a lot of people, but I don't. Right? And there's always that aspect of life. If, on the other hand, your motivation is greed. Here's what happens, and many of you maybe have even experienced this in your own walk with God. You grew up and your understanding of God was if you live a good and right life, then God will reward that. And what happens? You get out of high school and your mother gets cancer. You don't get into the college that you planned on attending. Um, you know, something goes completely sideways. And we all, I think, recognize it doesn't matter if you blame your boss or if you blame your parents or if you blame society. You just point the finger long enough and it's going to get bigger, right? There's this sense not just of why did these people do these things to me, but why is this happening to me of all people? Entitlement is inherently selfish, 
It's a get relationship. It says, I've earned this. I deserve this. I don't deserve this. Okay, and so this flows through all of human life. When Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, he's doing two things that you may not realize. One is he's giving a commentary on what human life was built for. And two, he's laying his finger on the problem. Right? And so no matter how much we may get glimpses of the goodness of generosity, there's a sense where it still eludes us. And so we have this free will offering of grain a way to worship God. And I want you to remember, what we see here is so visceral, is it not? What does it teach you about the horrors and consequences of sin when an innocent animal dies in your place monthly, weekly, annually? It doesn't matter how often. How many times do you have to go through the process before it hits you what sin really does to the human condition, what it really does to your relationships, what it really is doing to you? In the same way, What we have here is an embodiment of worship, a practice that both does and teaches while it does. When we use the word liturgical, this is the type of thing that we're referring to. It's embodied worship. The only aspect of true liturgy we have in the evangelical Protestant church is communion. So I'll use it as an illustration, right? We don't just say, you should remember that Jesus died for you. We say, come and take of the bread that was broken like his body. Partake of the blood that represents the new covenant in his spilled blood, right? You don't just think it. You don't just remember it. You embody the process and partake again. You chew and you swallow. It becomes a part of you, right? And yes, like any other liturgical fact, just like happens with Israel, it can become just external. It can become just ritual, But its purpose and its intent is a physical training of a spiritual truth. It's almost as if we're born with our hands just clawed shut. And it's only through this rehab of regularly opening them that we start to break away from this, you know, this reality. So let's look at the offering itself. What do we learn here? First off, I want you to notice the, um, the commonness of what's going on here. Notice that God doesn't say, if you want to give me a gift, beluga caviar will be fine. Thank you. He says bread. I know we're in this weird gluten-free thing and whatever the economy has done to us has totally screwed us up, but go back 20 years. What house didn't have Bread. Right? Flour is just a staple of life. Human life everywhere. Even if you don't have grain, you have rice. And what do you do with the rice? You make rice flour. It's just the most common thing. And I want you to keep in mind tonight that for the Israelite, this wouldn't just have been about the fruits of their work, their paycheck. It would have been about the work itself. Right? The blood, sweat, and tears that produced it. The reality of their, their lives in the work world. Okay? And what I'm trying to say tonight is that God sees it as acceptable worship when you give commonly things that all of us have. In gifts, 
in the fruits of our labor, sometimes we experience this because we recognize, for example, that somebody gets up, up here and uses their talents to sing a beautiful song, and we go, what a beautiful gift for the Lord, right? But we disqualify the normal stuff that we can do, you know? Or we see somebody who writes a, a million-dollar check for some sort of mission. You recognize how much impact that's going to have, and you look at your paycheck, and it's comparably small. It seems like you don't have enough to even make an offering. You're like the little drummer boy, right? What else can I give? I have nothing. It's the same with our work. When it refers here to the grain, this is everybody's job, right? At the very least, it's the vocation that all other vocations serve. And there's been this tendency in the world to make a division in vocations. And so there's lower work and then there's real work, right? Here's what it looks like in our world today. There's tech jobs, and financial jobs, there's doctors, there's nonprofits, and then there's garbage men, and then there's busboys, right? That distinction is something we all recognize. But here, grain, grain can be a gift for the Lord, right? Your work can be meaningful and acceptable to God in all commonality. And reality is, we do it in the church too. And so up here, we have missionaries, and pastors, and Bible teachers, and down here, we have carpenters and basically everybody else, right? Anyone who has a non-ministry job. In fact, the church for a thousand years was plagued with this idea of the priest and the layman. This was one of the great things that the Reformation under Martin Luther fought against. He was the one who said, don't you understand? Don't you understand that the milkmaid has a calling from God just as much as the pastor? He was the one who said, when the Bible says If God doesn't watch the city, then the watchman watches in vain. Don't you realize he does that with policemen and with government? He referred to policemen and the ones who actually guard the city as the masks of God, right? Because they're doing the work of God. Did you know that there's a place in the book of Isaiah where it talks about the reality of farming and it uses the same filled with the Holy Spirit language that it uses of missionaries or of pastors doing their work? You see, the reality is what God has called the church to, Paul sums up in Galatians this. He says, the law is summarized, completely fulfilled in this command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so that means that all these forms of work that we may call common can be an act of worship because they're fulfilling of the law. They're an act of obedience. Take garbage men. I know that none of us aspire to be garbage men, right? It's not something we dream about as being children, but what if you removed them from the modern world? What would life be like? Go back to the times when garbage was just something that was tossed out your window and not picked up and processed. Think of all of the disease and the difficulty, not to mention the stench and all of those things, the, the wild dogs that become dangerous in the city. All of these phenomenons are avoided because somebody's willing to do the common work. The reality that the Bible is pointing to here is that you can live a common life to the glory of God. That men can be called to be carpenters or garbage men. That women can be called to be housewives. Listen, one of the greatest frustrations I have with the issues we have in in gender distinctions and gender roles is that all of these things devalue the home. 
That's where the problem begins. Before we can ask, is there a distinction between man and woman, we have to say, do we value the raising of children? Because our culture does not, so it's not surprising that we don't want anyone to be relegated to that being the only position. We don't value it. Sorry, that's a little off track, but it's just grain. What you have to give is acceptable, okay? Now, the second thing I want you to notice is the tremendous variety. Did you notice as we read through it? If you bring it and it's just a pile of flour, do this. If you bring it and it's baked in an oven, if it's fried in a pan, if it's cooked in a griddle, over and over, all these different ways. Why? Well, for that, we need to double back and notice something, okay? When we looked at the burnt offering sacrifice, where does all that happen? When it gets to the tabernacle. Where does this one begin? It begins in the kitchen. It begins at home. They prepare these things at home and then bring it to the tabernacle. What I'm saying here is that worship spills out of the tabernacle and into your kitchen, into your living room, into the house that you live in. Right? That's built into that same idea of commonality, that worship isn't just something we can do on Sundays in this building with these people. You can do it Monday through Friday at your 9 to 5. You can do it at home, in your house, with your family. Vocation is such a big category. But it says here, all of these different ways, and how would it have come about? Well, obviously, it's left up to the choosing based on what you happen to be doing, right? One way we can imagine this going is somebody is cooking bread for the household and goes, I would also like to give some to the Lord. Others are making the equivalent of unleavened donuts and they say, because I'm doing this, I'd like to give it to the Lord. Recognize that some of this would definitely be preference. You'll notice every once in a while we change the bread for communion. That's because we cannot agree on the right bread for communion. And I'm not talking about theologically. I'm talking about the fact that I can only eat so much matzah. Okay? And we see matzah on the list here. Broken and cracked, you know, just like we would expect. But the reality is here, not only, not only can all in your life and in your way with your giftings worship the Lord, but you can do it in your way. Look, I am fully aware of the abuse of a statement like everyone should worship God in their own way. But the main reason why that's abusive is because it becomes exclusive. And so we say, well, my own way is golfing or something silly like that, right? But there is this recognition that you are not the person sitting next to you or across the room or in another church or in another culture and that God is apparently very okay with that variety, You know another thing that I love about this offering? No amounts. There's no minimum. There's no maximum. It's just laid out and it says, if it's this type of offering, this is how it should be. And we'll get to the ingredients in just a second in the way that they're used. But broadly, it's just if you want to give, whatever you want to give. Now, We see that it's flour, and we've talked about it being common, but I do want to recognize the fact that in every single one of these, it says fine flour. That's important, and here's why. Because fine flour equals hard work, okay? For us, it's not a big deal just to buy a bag of flour, but when it starts as grain, that's man hours. And I know myself well enough that there are plenty of times where I'm going to settle for rough flour, 
right? It's good enough, I'm hungry. You know, I'll have lumpy biscuits, but that's okay. But in this, fine flour. The reality is, if you're going to worship with your work, whatever your job is, it should be hard work. It should be the whole of you. Paul says this, whatever you find at your hand, whatever you find in front of you, do it wholeheartedly. Okay? Our worship should always be wholeheartedly. Our flowers should always be fine. Whatever you do, Paul says, do is unto the Lord. We'll come back to that later. So there's flour, and the second ingredient that's required in every one is oil. And I'll tell you what makes this offering so difficult to interpret. It's specific, right? These must mean something. They mean something to God, and they don't mean, I don't just want to eat a pile of flour that's gross. Please add some oil to it, right? It's got to be something more than that. But it's difficult because oil is referred to, and not always metaphorically, just in its usage over a hundred times in the first four books of the Bible. Just this far in the story, a hundred times oil comes up. In this culture, oil is used to light your houses, it's used to flavor your, your bread, it's used for the healing of wounds, it's used as the closest thing you can have to lotion in a dry climate, it's used for anointing priests and prophets and marking you out for a calling of God. It's so broadly used, when we look at an offering like this, we have to offer our interpretation as just that, an interpretation, because it's not very clear. One of the things that's most common for, the, for oil throughout both Old and New Testament is the Holy Spirit. But there is one that's more common in this beginning of the Old Testament, in the first four books of the Bible. There is this thing that flows through, and it continues throughout the Bible. So, for example, Jesus says, when you fast, interestingly enough, talking about eating, when you fast, don't go around covered in ashes, gloomy and moaning and saying, oh, I wish I could eat, but I love God too much, right? Instead, he says, when you leave the house, anoint your house with oil. In other words, or sorry, anoint your face with oil. In other words, what he says is, go out with gladness, with a smile on your face. Do it as an act of joy. And it seems to me that that's the most likely connotation of oil here, right? Because let's just recognize if somebody hands you a pile of flour that's been burned in an oven or one mixed with oil, there's a happiness difference between those two. There's a disparity in the level of joy. And that's how we see oil used throughout the Old Testament. And so even if that's not accurate, I can tell you this, that of both your giving and your work, if you're going to offer it to God, it must be joyful. Any work, even the most menial, can be an offering to God, but it cannot be a drudgery. It can't. And that is a problem with work, is it not? The drudgery of it. My parents met at Red Robin. Okay? My father fired my mother so he could date her at Red Robin. When I became 16, I got a job at Red Robin, and my sister worked there for years and met her husband at Red Robin, okay? This runs in our family, so it was natural that when I turned 16, my very first job was at Red Robin, and I made it three months. I made it three months as a busboy, and it was because the drudgery killed me. And I remember specifically the reason I quit. It's because I started to dream about bussing tables, and I couldn't pull another eight-hour shift. I just couldn't do it. Why? Because... I did the same thing over and over, and it never made a difference. I clean the table, I come back, it's dirty again. Later on, I worked in a plastic factory. Specifically, what we did is that we created plastic bags, and then we printed on them. I worked in the printing part. But I never got to see the fruits of my labor. 
okay? What would happen is the plastic would come to us unprinted, it would leave us printed. And I never even got the joy of walking into a room and looking around and saying, here is all the plastic we printed this week, right? I experienced what Karl Marx called the alienation of the worker. I had no relationship with the product. And so it was a drudgery. It was just going through the motions. There was no productivity to it that was visible. But that has just as much to do with my perspective as it does the job. Go back to bussing tables. Every time I bust that table, I made it clean so a group of friends or a family could enjoy one another over a good meal. Right? Something that the Bible constantly points to being a good part of human life. Right? What does the author of Ecclesiastes say? Even if you can't find meaning in life, it's worth having a meal with friends. And I was enabling that over and over again, but because I couldn't see that, it was a drudgery. And I'm shocked how often people feel stuck in whatever their career is and don't recognize that it does these same things, that it enables the goodness of life. Now, there are clearly careers where this is more difficult than others, for sure. And we'll deal with that in just a second. But the reality is so many things we do can reflect the character of God, right? If you're a lawyer pursuing justice, it's because God cares about justice. And one day, justice will be done. And so that gives meaning to your work. If you're a nurse working and bringing healing, you're reflecting not just God's heart, but demonstrating compassion and literally saving lives, right? Those places it can be easy to see, but sometimes in the more basic things, we we miss how it fits in this idea of human flourishing and the idea of loving our neighbor, but that doesn't mean it's not there. If you make things that are specifically for pleasure, like video games, There is a way to do that as unto the Lord, recognizing that rest and pleasure are God-designed to be a part of human life. And with any of those fields, you can also twist them to terribly destruct and uh, and, uh, create addiction um, and destroy and take advantage of. Say you work in advertising. If your job is to let people know about good things, it can be a good thing. If your job is to make a bunch of money tricking people into buying another thing, maybe not so much. But it's not the job. It's something else about the job. And the first thing we see here is joy. It needs to be with oil. The same is with your giving. Okay? God doesn't want your grudging last dollar. He has no need for it. What interest does the God of all creation have in your money that you need to pay your rent on time? right? That you need to give to God or he's just going to sit there and go, I can't believe, right? That's not the idea. This is how Paul puts it in the letter to the Corinthians. He's talking about this issue of giving and he says, God loves a cheerful giver, one who gives with joy, one who recognizes the value and the pleasure of the act of giving, one who reiterates to himself it is more blessed to give than to receive and actually finds it to be true. You know what the word there is for cheerful? It's the Greek word hilarion. It's where we get our word hilarious, right? This isn't just that God loves somebody who gives pleasantly. It's that this is something I really enjoy. In fact, I would add to you that this distinction of the fact that some of us are going to bring crackers and some of us are going to bring donuts, this distinction here, a lot of it has to do with joy. Give what you're happy to give. Give the thing that you love giving with oil. So it's flour and oil, and then we see in every offering frankincense. That's important because this sets Israel apart. I know in the English here it calls it, calls it a food offering, and that can be misleading as if God is hungry and we're taking care of his diet, right? 
And there were plenty of religions contemporary to the people of Israel that believed just that, okay? That they were making food for the Lord. But frankincense is an inedible, okay? It's not something you put in food. And if you look broadly at the way Israel understood it, they constantly are reminding themselves, not God, he knows, that God is not hungry and that he doesn't need anything from his worshipers, right? Israel understood God as the giver. And actually, grain was a great iteration of that. It displayed that maybe better than any other place that God is the provider. Because take the life of the farmer. What I'm about to say applies to all of you in all of your jobs, and it doesn't matter if you get handouts or a paycheck. The Bible says that's provision. The Bible says that that's a gift from the Lord. With a farmer, it's easier to see. And here's why. Because farming takes skill, right? You can't just you know, with, with no knowledge, just start a successful farm. It also takes a lot of hard work. Even today, as removed as we are from our farms, knowing you'd have to cross the state to find a farm, right? Even to this day, we have this image, this archetype of the hardworking farmer. We know that he gets up earlier than us. Uh, we know that when it gets stormy, he doesn't go, oh man, I don't want to go into work today, right? He has to go into work. We, we know that, um, you know, that he can't take a vacation certain times of year. The, all of these things are built into it. It's hard work. It's not just skillful and hard, it's also knowledgeable. It's, it's got all of these aspects to it, but it doesn't change the fact that at the end of the day, your crop still may go sideways, right? You can know how to predict the weather, but you can't change the weather. You can know what type of seeds to buy, but there could be some sort of disease that rushes through and destroys everything. There are so many things outside of your control that the Israelites, because this was such a part of their life, always understood the major portion of their work and their profits had nothing to do with them. And like I said, that's true of you as well. Paul asked that same Corinthian church, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why did you boast in it? Think of all of the variables you had no control of in your life, in your standard of living, uh, you know, in the place that you were born. Just recognize whatever job you're doing now, whatever it is, could you have done it if you were born in a country that's so third world you don't even know the name of it and can't point to it on a map? Right? Where you're born is a major component. Who you were born to, this idea of privilege that our culture is finally starting to recognize as such a major part in determining our lives, is recognizing there's a lot of it you didn't do. And you say, yeah, but I brought hard work to the table. You did. And some of that is because you had great examples of hard work behind you and many opportunities to grow the muscles of hard work and all of these other things. And you say, yes, but I'm more talented than anyone else. That, of all places, should point to this reality. You didn't make that talent. You're just naturally talented. Why can you take credit for that? Right? And so this idea of provision is a major part. And so for Israel bringing this offering, it's never to give to God and initiate contact, but always to receive. In fact, we never see this offering given on its own. It's always given with the burnt offering. This can't stand alone as an offering. It's coupled with the atonement offering. There's an interesting story at the very beginning of the Bible that illustrates what we're trying to talk about here. Sin enters the picture, and the very first sacrifice, the very first offering we find, the very first death we find in the Bible is one that God commits and not man. 
Adam and Eve have tried to cover up their nakedness and deal with the problem with fig leaves, and God says, that's not going to work. And it says in Genesis chapter 3, he made for them skins. Okay? This is not God conjuring skins out of thin air. You know? and if, if so, it would have said he made for them Armani suits. Right? He could do whatever he wants. It says skins, and skins come from animal. That means God takes the life of an animal. Even there, he's pointing forward to the Levitical sacrifice system and beyond it to Jesus. But what happens in the next generation? Adam and Eve have two kids, the oldest boys named Cain and the younger boys named Abel. And it says in Genesis chapter 4, at the time for the bringing of offerings, Abel, the younger boy, brought a sheep from his field because he was a shepherd and offered it to the Lord. Cain, the older boy, brought grain from the field because he was a farmer as an offering to the Lord. And it says, and God regarded Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. He accepted the animal and not the grain. And you can look at that and wonder why, and all sorts of theories come forward. You will hear commentators every once in a while who say that Abel brought this big and luscious and fat sheep, and Cain just brought the crap left over on the table after he had taken the best for himself. Semantically, the language in that chapter demands that he's bringing the best of his offering. He's bringing the first fruits. Others will say, well, a grain offering just wasn't acceptable as a sacrifice. Hello, Leviticus chapter 2, right? It becomes a normal part of worship. It's the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 who tells us that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected because of faith. Okay? There was something about the posture of the offerer and not the type of offering that was given that changes what happens there. And so one is accepted and one is rejected. However, what does it look like to have faith? Ultimately, I would say they both have faith. The difference is that Abel comes trusting in God's provision, just as he's promised in Genesis 3.15 that he's going to set this right, recognizing his need for salvation, recognizing that something innocent must die in his place if he's going to have a relationship with God. Cain comes trusting in his ability to please God on his own, right? In self-confidence saying, look at what I have to offer. Okay? If your giving to God is effectively your high score on life that you're just offering to him, going, look how great I am, that puts you in Cain's camp. And let me add one more thing that's very interesting. Cain is so disgruntled by the, his offering being rejected, and more importantly, his younger brother's being accepted, that he plots murder and pulls it off and kills his brother. But before that happens, God speaks directly to Cain, and he says, be careful, Cain. Sin's lying at the door, but you will rule over it, right? You know the word there for sin? It could just be a warning, right? Hey, I know what you're premeditating right now. You can overcome it. It's not too late to not kill your brother. That's possible. But that word there for sin is the same one used for sin offering. The Hebrews use the words interchangeably. And so it may even be that it, what he's basically saying is, you can still set this right. Just go to your brother and ask for one of his sheep which is surprisingly humbling in this sort of situation, is it not? To say, not only do I need the Lord, but I need some help from my younger brother, right? It may be that that's what's really going on in that story, but ultimately, what we find when we get to the grain offering is that you can't just come and give to God and initiate relationship and say, here's how great I am, Lord. You have to do this as a response. It's the after, not the before. It's recognizing God as giver and responding in giving, okay? So, flour, oil, and now frankincense. Frankincense is incense, 
Okay, and sometimes in your Bible it's just translated that way. It's just the type of resin that they used to make incense in the Middle East there all came from these same group of trees, and so it's called frankincense to d- distinguish it from other incense in other parts of the world. Um, it may seem obvious, but this is what it means. It means worship. In fact, it means worship so specifically that sometimes the prophets don't criticize Israel for offering sacrifices to other gods, but for offering incense to other gods, okay? Incense has this transcendent reality to it that still holds true for the New Agers today, right? Your aunt who burns incense in her bedroom, there's something there that's always been a part of how humans have thought. And it was an aspect of worship, and basically offering with an incense here is recognizing the fact that it has to be worshipful, It says here it's that a a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and this is the second part for your work and for your gift. It has to be an act of worship. Now, let me say this about work. I am convinced that all work is worship. The question is what you're worshiping, right? And so you can use your work to worship money and say, what I need most, what will make me happy, what will make me comfortable, what will make me secure is money, and so my job is worship of money. It gets me what I need. Or maybe, maybe it's all about, all about how you look. And so my job is my identity, right? And that's what you worship is just holding up the image of yourself so all the world can see how smart and how talented and how cutthroat and how much better you are than the competition or whatever. But it's still ultimately worship. We don't just work, we work to an end. But work can be mingled with frankincense. It can be worship as unto the Lord. Paul extends it further and he says, even if you just eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. How much more your work, right? You can take every day of your work, and this isn't just your job. You can grab a vacuum after service and vacuum the foyer as an act of worship, right? You can tutor a child as an act of worship. You can take every aspect of your life and do it as unto the Lord. Paul even looks at slaves. And he says, look, do your work. Instead of doing it for your master as a man pleaser, instead of doing it so you don't get beat or to survive another day, you can take this, this horrible reality, and do it as an act of worship. Do it as unto the Lord. And so our work should be worship and our giving should be worship. Ultimately, as much as the Bible makes a big deal about our giving, recognizing the fact that all humanity has humanity in common and so is worth life and is worth a meal. Or recognizing the fact that we're all in this as a church together, so it's appropriate for you to support the pastors. Even in this offering, right, part of the offering goes to the priests and it's part of their livelihood. But ultimately, the reason we give is worship. This is what Paul says talking to the church in Philippians. I love this passage in Philippians 4. He says, you sent me money again. Thank you. And I say thank you not because I had any need. He says, I'm not thanking you because you met a need. He says, but it is an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord, a pleasing aroma to him. He takes the same language. And he says, you gave and it was worship. You gave unto the Lord to point to him. The only end was God himself. So these are the ingredients that are required, but there's also some that are not allowed. And the first one is leaven. 
And leaven is a constant not allowed in the relationship with Lord. If you were with us in 1 Corinthians, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says that our lives should be unleavened. He picks up on the same metaphor. Jesus warns his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Right? This aspect exists and in the Old Testament worship, none of their offerings were to have leaven in them. And so the bread offerings were unleavened. And the reason very clearly has to do with corruption. Okay? Leaven or yeast is effectively a living and dying and digesting thing. And so it's this picture of what sin does in our lives. It destroys and it corrupts. It's also a picture of pride, one of the great root sins, right? Because it puffs up. You don't get more bread from leaven, you just get more air from leaven. And so it was always the picture to the Jews of pride as well. It says, these offerings aren't to have any leaven. Here's what I'm saying, is that your work can be menial, but it can't be sinful. Right? There are ways of working that you can't offer unto the Lord. And we recognize, don't we, that people are fully capable of making the Lord foot the bill for the way that we behave because it's done in his name. Right? And so we have these priests who may excuse their entire behavior because they're a priest and so they're entitled to whatever, blech, you know. Um, and we have businessmen who will say, well, this is just the way of doing business and try and root around particular verses of behavior in the Bible it can't be leavened. This is why, as much as I say all work, there are clearly some work that it's not so much, right? Like a mob boss. You can't be a mob boss and offer that to the Lord. You're going to have to retire, okay? But all work is prone to corruption. All work is prone to cutting corners. All work is prone to shoddy craftsmanship. All work is prone to selfishness and self-serving motives and falling short of loving your neighbor. Those things can't be part of this paradigm. The second one is that there's no honey, and this is super cryptic for a couple of reasons. One, we're pretty sure that Israel didn't keep bees, so this is most likely not honey as we think of it, but date honey, right? The juice, the, the juice of a date, okay? In that case, if it's date honey, it's just fermentation like any other fruit, like leaven, it's in the same thing, but if it is bee honey, which is possible, there is this reality of honey plus fire, which is more fire, right? What would be the difference between a loaf of bread on the offering in the altar burning and a loaf of bread drenched in honey? Have you ever tried to barbecue with honey? It flares up like crazy. So it's possible the idea here is that it shouldn't, you shouldn't make more of a deal of it than it is, right? Can you imagine a guy who offers his offering with honey? Somebody looks over and is like, man, that's a big offering. No, it's not. It's just artificially flavored, right? It's just sweetened with honey. It's just this fake fire, to it. There's one other ingredient that it says must be a part of the offering, and that's salt. And once again, it's so easy to be stumped here because salt does a lot of things. It gives flavor, it preserves, it can stop corruption, it, it can do so many things. But he does give us a guideline here that's helpful. Notice what he says in verse 13 You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. He specifies here, it's the salt of the covenant. Now that's not helpful for us because when we hear the word covenant, we don't always know what that is. There's only one modern world covenant. We'll talk about that in a second. But the closest we usually get is a contract. But recognize that's already been laid aside, right? 
This offering is not, I'll give you these things, Lord, if you give me these things. It's not an exchange of goods and services. A covenant is something more. It says, I will give you my loyalty if you will be loyal to me. It's not about goods and services. It's about personhood. The only modern-day covenant we have is marriage. That's what the Bible calls a covenant. And it's because it's this determination of loyalty. Till death do us part, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. And salt in the ancient world was a part of covenant cutting ceremonies, okay? In fact, the Arabians to this day will take salt and put it on a sword if they're coming to like a peace agreement and they'll both taste salt and it's considered to be eternal. It's possible even the old English saying he's not worth his salt comes from this idea. He doesn't keep his promises, right? He doesn't live up to the covenant, okay? And so the idea here is that all of this offering has to be in the context of seasoned in this reality of loyalty, both ways, relationship, both ways, okay? Now, these offerings don't just teach us about what's wrong, and they're not just a way that we move towards what's right. They're a picture of how God ultimately set everything right in Jesus Christ, Over and over again, the New Testament says all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. All of the Old Testament law was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus himself said, don't think that I've come to throw away the law. I came to fulfill it. And that includes the sacrificial system. And so it's interesting to me that one of the ways that Jesus identifies himself in the Gospel of John is the bread of life that's come from heaven. He says, God has given a provision. He is the great provider and I am the provision. I am the bread. I am the one that brings life. I am what you needed, and God has freely given it. Okay. And so here's the reality. The reality is the only thing that creates a generosity like this, a truly free will offering, one that is generous. And notice here that this generosity is not just unto the Lord, but because it involves your work, it's unto other people. That's why Jesus can say to those two groups of humanity divides at the end, come, enter into the kingdom because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. Why? He says, because as much as you did it to the least, you did it to me. And so the idea of generosity here is always a gift to God because you're giving to him. You're giving to his people in the church. You're giving to his creation whom he loves, right? All of these aspects. But ultimately, God is the giver. And not just in creation. That's what the first fruits offerings are about. But here, the the great provision of Jesus Christ. In that same chapter when Paul says God loves a hilarious giver, he connects the dot on this issue. And this is what he says. He says, you should give remembering that he who was rich became poor so that you who are poor might become rich. He takes what God has done in Jesus Christ and he puts it in economic terms. And he says, Jesus had everything and he laid it aside so that you having nothing would have everything. He says, keep that in mind when you give. We give because we've been given to. John says, we love because he first loved us. And that is the only motive that won't fail you in generosity. We already talked about greed and guilt, right? Eventually, greed will breed entitlement and you'll walk away from being generous because you were never generous in the first place. 
Eventually, guilt will move you away from generosity because there's just too much need and you've made it all about you. Now you're the giver. But even compassion will fail you. Maybe some of you have experienced this. It's a little bit harder if it's a check in the mail to some person you've never met in a foreign country. But what about those personal charity cases in your life? What about those people that you've invested hours of time and hundreds of dollars and all of this effort and tears and prayers into and they treat you like like you don't care about them at all and you start to get angry and you're like don't you realize what I've done for you your compassion has failed I mean let me just point this out that if love stems from you as the ultimate source it's exhaustible and it will be exhausted but this source that God has given so greatly that we can be tremendously generous is inexhaustible. Now, I want to be clear here. This offering can't exist on its own. You can't come to God and be the giver, and you can't even just recognize what God did in Jesus Christ and say, hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to pay this forward. You remember the film? Right? You have an example of a good action, and so you do it as well. There is a version of this that tries to look at the cross. It's called the theory of moral influence. That basically what God was accomplishing in Jesus on the cross was just an example. One that would break our hearts. One that would show us true love. One that would make us pay it forward to other people. That falls short of what the cross is. And it's also surprisingly false when you just analyze it. Love is demonstrative, but if it's just a demonstration, it's never love, right? If that was just an act played out for us to watch and go, oh, it's not as meaningful. There's a book on the atonement by a guy named McLeod, and he speaks of this issue, and he puts it better than I can, so I'd like to read it to you. This is what he says. He says, the difference, he's speaking here of how the New Testament portrays the cross, the difference uh, with the moral influence theory of the cross is that it's merely a demonstration. God does not demonstrate his love by saving us. He saves us by demonstrating love. But can the cross ever be a demonstration of redeeming love unless it's first of all a redeeming act? This is certainly how the New Testament portrays it. It bears clear witness to the fact that the cross was indeed a demonstration, indeed the demonstration of God's love. We see this in 1 John 4.10, but this passage is not content to say this is love. It says specifically, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If we take away the reason for his dying to expiate sin, The love becomes an empty gesture. The cross must be a saving act before it can be a saving word. There must be the reality of the burnt offering and the substitution of an innocent sacrifice before the reality of that love can change your life. It can't just be a good idea. Christ's love is not just a picture for us to be seen. It's something that you are the recipient of. And that love changes lives. That gift opens hands. That gift makes you a giver. Okay? And like I said, that giving is broad. 
It involves taking your work and doing it as a service to other people. It involves taking the profits of your work and giving to God and giving to his church and giving to missionaries and giving to the needy and all of these things. But in all of these ways that we've seen, it's ultimately a response to the fact that God has given. It's an overlook flow of the fact that God has been so good to you that you can be freely good with other people. If this isn't the case, then how can we respect a man like Jesus who comes and he says, there's only one thing you need to do, this one thing you lack, there's only one thing standing between you and being my follower, sell all that you have to the poor and come and follow me. Either he sets up a demand there that no Christian in history has ever followed suit in, and so none of us are actually followers of Christ, or he recognizes the fact that the one thing holding that guy back from the good life, from the real life, from the true life, is that he has all of this stuff weighing him down. That man sees his wealth as something to protect, something worth keeping. And Jesus says, no, the life lived beautifully, the life lived worthwhile, the life lived as an act of worship is ultimately a life of giving. That's why the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, can come and say, I didn't come to be served, but to be a servant and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so this sort of generosity, this is the Christian life because God is a generous God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, um, that we would find a way for this to be liturgical, that we would have a way in our life where we are going through the acts of generosity and processing it in these ways as in the midst of a God who is loyal to us, that will meet all our needs in Jesus Christ, as Paul says, uh, that it would be as an act of worship and not just the meeting of need, but something deeper and something greater, that it would be with oil and gladness and joy, that it would be hard work and hard-earned, that it would cost us something to give, that it would be without leaven, without corruption, that we would lay aside these things that actually hinder us giving. And I pray, Lord, that it would be light in the fact that we are recipients, that we have been given to, that it would be in light of the fact that what we most needed and didn't have, you gave, and you gave freely, and great cost to yourself, and you said, this, this is love. I pray, Lord, that that love would be shed abroad in our hearts, that it would overflow its banks, that generosity would spill from our lives until we learn the truth of and proclaim with our lives that it's more blessed to give than to receive. We ask this in your name. Amen.